Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Today, I welcome Val Garver, who is a medievalist at Northern Illinois University, specializes in the life of women and children in the medieval period. So she's the perfect person to talk about Arya's second POV chapter in A Clash of Kings. Then I talk House of the Dragon with medieval historian Ian McInnes. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. Valerie Garver. What's your relationship with this book, A Clash of Kings? Well, I first read the book um, after I watched the first season of the mm-hmm. TV show Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because I'm, I hate, like, hate spoilers um, or having something given away to right. me before I either see or read it. And so after I watched the first season, I kind of got hooked and I thought, I'm going to read the books so that no one then tells me something and <laughs> messes up for me so I can experience it firsthand via the books. Right. So that, that was how I first came to the books. Now, were you already a professional historian interested in the medieval world or like where does this find you in terms of your career? Oh, um, it was when I was well into my career as a medieval historian. Okay. So, yeah, that's that's kind of how I came to it. I also, in part, thought when I saw the show, like, oh, my students are going to ask about this. Because uh-huh. over the years, there's been various books or movies, and students, you, you can kind of predict, students are going to ask about this. Right. And so it was another reason to kind of read the books, because sometimes that helps if I read the things or watch the things that they're interested in, too. Right. Yeah. So you saw the, the show, and then you picked up the book, and then you just kept reading. Is that correct? Is that basically yeah. What happened? Exactly. All right. So <laughs> I'm assuming you did get questions from students, and maybe that um, spurred your interest in doing a full seminar uh, related to Game of Thrones. It did. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it was kind of a funny thing about the first season of the show. Is as I watched it, I thought, "Wow, this is kind of amazing." There are bits of it mm-hmm. that feel more medieval than like movies or mm-hmm. other kinds of shows that are allegedly about the Middle Ages, but don't don't really get things right. But had mo- parts of it definitely had a very medieval feel. And then I remember talking to colleagues who said the same thing, you know, other medievalists, mm. like, mm. oh, isn't it funny? And we would all pick up on these certain scenes that we thought were like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was funny because sometimes I started using references to the show in my regular classes. So there's a great scene um, from the first season in which, you know, Catelyn Stark kind of calls all the bannermen of the Tullys yeah. to yeah, yeah. arrest Tyrion. And it was a really good example of something that students sometimes I felt never quite got in class, which so is So wait, like, let's just make sure we know what we're talking about. Oh, the, sure. Yeah. This is sort of, she's at the end of the crossroads and Tyrion Correct. walks in and she kind of looks around the room and thinks, 
I bet you these guys are loyal to my father. And then yep. she decides that she's going to call them out, you know, each each by house and really kind of call them to arms, right? Is that the scene you're talking about? Yes, that's exactly okay. it. And I would even say, I don't even think she just like suspects they would. It's like she knows that they they will come to her. Yeah. Like she just knows. Yeah. Um, and she knows how to do it kind of formally. And I like that scene because I say to the students, you know how I'm always telling you that politics was personal in the Middle Ages mm. and it was based on familial connections mm. and like connections of friendship and bonds mm -hmm. of loyalty. I'm like, it's like that scene. And they would all go, oh yeah. And I found out a couple other colleagues were using that same scene. So a student came up to me afterwards and she said, oh, have you ever thought about teaching a class on Game of Thrones? And I said, oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about TV. <laughs> and she said, okay. And then, but it's funny, she had a class with uh, another professor on campus who's a, was an expert, still is an expert really, in long form television. Mm. It's Jeff Chown, who's over in our communications department. Okay. And she had a class with him, and he mentioned something in this class, which was about long-form television, about how he liked the show Game of Thrones. He thought it was quite good example of that kind of television. Uh, but he said, I just don't feel like I can teach it because I don't know that much about, like, the Middle Ages or fantasy or anything. And so she said to him, oh, you know, my other professor, <laughs> she said, I don't know anything about TV. And he and I happened to be on a committee at the time together. So we ended up talking when we were on this committee. I remember mm. in this committee room, we were like, we should teach a class. And so you're like, you got yeah. a lot of chocolate and I've got a lot of peanut butter over here. Exactly. I wonder, I wonder what exactly. we could do with these two <laughs> items. All right. That's fantastic. So, um, so I just, just a little interlude here. Uh, I'm assuming that for the same reasons you've been watching House of the Dragon? I have been watching it, yeah. All right. I'm just kind of curious, your general impressions of that show. At first, I got to be honest, I didn't really like it very much. That first episode sort of infuriated me for oh, a variety of reasons. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, the show grew on me. And I kept watching it for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, I'm still probably going to teach that Game of Thrones class again. And yeah. I need to know like what might drive students into the class. And I thought that maybe the show is more likely to get them interested. Uh, and yeah, it's more current. Also, I gotta, I'll be honest, I love the dragons. Like in the show, the way they portray them, it's really, they're, they're really fun. And yeah. so I was like, I definitely like that part so That's i kept watching <laughs> and it did grow on me after a while and i thought oh this is kind of better than i thought but i had to like to put my finger on what it is that makes me like it less than the original game of thrones show is yeah. i think it's because i was never a team targaryen person right um they, it was never my the the side i was rooting for right. i always saw daenerys targaryen as being kind of a wicked person in a way in addition to being, I mean, I understood all the ways in which she was very cool and, mm -hmm. um, you know, in some ways fought for social justice, but I always thought at what a high cost. Um, and so I was never that into the Targaryens. And I guess what I miss is like that depth in the uh, original show of mm -hmm. different houses. You got a little bit more of that. But I think the thing that I like least about the show is the level of violence without the kind of running commentary in the mm. background about a critique of the violence that we got in mm -hmm. that first show. And I think that's because it's Targaryen focused. I think it's just the nature of the source. Well, the, and I think that they might try to do that in upcoming seasons because I feel like they're going to, I mean, this first season tried to cover what, like two decades or something. Yeah. It was kind of a, that was a difficult task. So I feel like now that you're really focusing in on the actual civil war, 
it feels like you're going to have to deal with the consequences of the violence more. At least that's my hope. So. That's my hope. Yeah. And I have to say the last episode I thought was one of the best ones. And I thought it did start to do that a little bit, mm. like the cost, right, to Rhaenyra mm-hmm. of losing her son. Mm-hmm. And like the, co- the like, I, I also thought it was interesting what they said about the dragons, about whether can you control your dragons or not. I thought that was well played out, too. Mm-hmm. So I think like I'm very hopeful. And I also thought yeah. that that first season, that's I don't know, that was very tricky to cover that much time. So hope and if did feel by the end of it, like I think that's another reason why maybe I didn't like it as much as it felt like a setup. Um, so, whereas the first season of Game of Thrones felt like a real story, if that makes sense. Yeah, so. no, I totally, I totally know what you mean. I feel like, like I'm with you. I feel like these Targaryens are are hard to root for, for sure. Yeah, I feel like I'm kind of watching this show like I would watch, like a sometimes Scorsese will focus in on a, an interesting personality that's only going to spiral into darkness. And you yeah. kind of have to be interested in the storytelling. Like, you're not really rooting for, you know, th- this character to fall into depravity. But at the same time, it's kind of interesting to watch. So I, I feel like I'm watching this show kind of like I watch Breaking Bad or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I liked Breaking Bad, too. Um, but I But the characters what, are still more sympathetic in Breaking Bad. But we'll yeah, see. Maybe so. I- I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I loved House of the Dragon. I do feel like there are certain elements of the original series that were not in that show. And I feel like one of the great feats of that first show is to show what happens in between point A and point B. Like, like for instance, in this chapter we're covering today, Arya's on the road. Yeah. And... It just takes a long time to get from one place to another, and antics will ensue when you're on the road, you know? Like, anything <laughs> could happen on the road. You could, you know, you could have a, a dispute between children that could actually have real-world political consequences, like we saw with Joffrey and, and Arya in the first book. Um, yeah. When you got a dragon to fly around, which is, don't get me wrong, super cool, they're dragons, right? But when you got a dragon to fly around, there's no what's going to happen along the road that's going to complicate the narrative. So I do miss from time to time a chapter like this uh, where, I don't know, maybe there's 50 miles covered, but a lot's going to happen in those 50 miles. Yeah, I I agree completely. And I think that's one of the other reasons. It kind of draws on another kind of global reason why I, I kind of preferred the first series is probably because it did feel more medieval and that passage of time mm. and the difficulty of communication and how long it takes mm. to get information mm. from point A to point B. That's that's quite medieval, actually. Yes. It's a big medieval problem. That's right. Um, and you, I think you're exactly right. In House of the Dragon, it happens really fast. It, the communication seems quicker. Uh, to me, it seems like more of a, a modern show, maybe... You know, I haven't completely thought this through, but to me, so far, it feels a little more early modern than mm. medieval. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. The other thing that is missing is that, I, like, a character that you can root for. And I do feel like Arya is, in a way, spiraling into darkness, right? If, if yeah. we, we see her from this book to the end of Dance, she's absolutely on a path toward a death religion. Um 
but boy, do I ever root for her. I, I mean, I'm always oh, yeah. rooting for Arya no matter what. It's not She doesn't have the Targaryen problem. And, you know, I guess it's hard not to root for Arya. She's, there's just so much to love about her and... But I feel like well let's 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 jump right in, shall we? Let, yeah, let's talk about definitely. Arya. Okay. Arya and thirty men continue north as they watch refugees march south along the King's Road. At the inn, several travelers scold Yorn for bringing his men into harm's way. Arya hears rumors about battles and rob and wolves. When she is sent outside for speaking out of turn, Arya meets Jack and Hagar, who asks for beer. She sees gold cloaks sent by the queen. The queen's men ask after a boy in their company. Arya, who is now hiding with Gendry, whispers that they are looking for her. When swords are drawn, it seems that the men are actually after Gendry. Yorin puts a blade to the throat of one of the men, takes his sword, and sends the gold cloaks away. He tells Arya and Gendry that they will be riding coursers from now on. So, Valerie Garver, I'm wondering what you bring to the table today. I've asked you for an observation and or a question. Yeah, um, I guess my observation would be that this chapter is really great at sort of highlighting the children in the chapter is children. Mm. And I really quite like that about it. Um, they, they don't come across as having too much adult motivation, which I think sometimes there are points in the books where, you know, effectively like adolescents or children are given a kind of like motivation that seems hard to believe, like kind of a follow through that doesn't entirely make sense. Mm. Um, but at other times, like they, they're very well written. And I think this is a chapter where they're, they're well written. And I would say like as a historian of medieval childhood, it, it's a particularly interesting chapter because you're seeing children who are in this chapter who are the, the have nots. Um, right. And the, the, they've really had hard lives. And I, I sort of like all the different ways that their kind of differing backgrounds are sort of highlighted and what those backgrounds cause them to do in certain situations. Um, especially the situations of stress, like, you know, kind of Arya's reaction. But like just uh, for example, to focus on Arya, um, when she says, you know, she thinks about her dad mm. and Sansa, mm -hmm. she says, oh, it made me feel so sad. You know, like she's thinking back on it. And right. there's this just immediate response of this. It's painful and kind of moving on to other topics. Right. And I can see that as a like a pretty natural kind of response. For a, for a child, but also I feel like it also kind of highlights where her character is going. You know, she's had this wonderful childhood at Winterfell, yeah. and now she's lost it, and she has this kind of nostalgia, but pained nostalgia for the past, and it's sort of like she has to move on and look for something else, and what examples does she have around her, right? Yeah, I kind um, of feel like with Arya, and I guess this, is, this would be the case for almost anyone who's experiencing grief, it's like it kind of sneaks up on you. But then yeah. you've got other concerns. You like you've got your daily concerns and of course Arya's concerns are immediate and in severe, right? Oh yeah. She's yeah. got she absolutely has to keep up this guys. She's around men who are legit dangerous, you know, dangerous. Mm -hmm. And uh on top of the you know these gold cloaks uh, show up, she's got to decide if you know, is Jacken a friend or is he an enemy? Can I trust this guy? You know, her mind is occupied, right? 
And yeah. yet there's there's still that little moment where she kind of allows herself to experience the sadness, but immediately she's distracted again. I, I think that I don't know if that's necessarily a, a feature necessarily of childhood, but I I totally find it believable for her. Yeah, I guess I would say it's maybe more of a kind of, it makes me feel like it's more of a child sense because so many adults ruminate on their grief sure, and kind of understand it in a kind of broader context. Yeah. 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 And I think it does a good job of like suggesting that for a child, like if this is her first real experience of losing someone super close to her, which I mean, obviously like she was um, upset when um, Jory was killed, Mm. but you know, and I mean, that's someone who, that she knew from her childhood, but to have like a, a close relative like that, that would be a first experience for her. Yeah. And I think it would be hard for her to contextualize it. But I also think you're right. Like this immediate, like, how, how is she just going to get by? Um, I think that's a very, a very interesting aspect of the chapter. And also an interesting aspect of this book overall is what happens to the have nots of mm. Westeros mm. during this time. And I think you see that so well in this chapter. Um, and not just with the children, but with the the people passing by and saying, why are you going the wrong direction? And, you know, I think that's also like this moment where I think it's Arya notices like the grave of a child. Mm-hmm. Um, that was also very, very, uh, I thought a nice touch because, of course, um, one of the boys wants to go and take the crystal off of it. And um, Yoran is like, no, you can't do that. Um, and there's a sense of this is a child's grave and someone has very lovingly. Yeah buried this child, but also that people respect that. And I, I kind of like that aspect too of the book, um, that if it's drawing from kind of a medieval model that um, that Martin didn't just buy into kind of the pop culture idea that, oh, these people, they wouldn't have cared about their lost children. They really do, right? Yeah. And I think that comes out here really well as well. But I also think one of her big challenges too, among them, uh, in addition to the ones that you already mentioned, which I, I completely agree with, is also that she's trying to pass as a boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even though she's, you know, definitely portrayed as kind of like a tomboy earlier in the book, one starts to realize that there's all these ways in which she can't pass, like she's having trouble passing because people start to notice she's a girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's like really um, also adding to her stress. Absolutely. Yeah. She's like keeping that mask on must occupy a lot of her, daily life right oh yeah yeah i mean just the thing that she's like i can't go and bathe mm-hmm. yeah, and you can tell to. she would like she to, she yeah. needs to right? <laughs> exactly exactly so i'm wondering all right so a lot of your research relates to medieval childhood and i'm wondering Arya's kind of on this cusp between you know, she grew up in a very wealthy family. She She's very much a have and not a have not, right? Exactly. And yet, she's kind of forced into this role where she has to either pretend to be a have not and or in, in, in many ways, now she is a have not. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about the differences between childhood as experienced by, you know, wealthy nobility and childhood experienced by commoners. Yeah. um, I think one of the most important 
differences would be access to nutrition. Mm. Um, and so there's a, a good amount, I would say, of literature about this, kind of trying to understand how children would have been affected by um, nutritional deficiencies mm. that probably would have been more or less common at, at certain times. And so, especially because um, the population would mainly have been engaged in agriculture in the Middle Ages, so many children kind of would have lived in the countryside and been very dependent on what could their families grow or what did they mm. have access to. And in some years, you know, that, that could have been quite good, but we have plenty of examples of uh, famines and also um, of the effects of things like warfare, like what we're seeing in this chapter um, that disrupted um, the supply of food. And one definitely gets a sense that if you're from a wealthy family, you're not going to be as concerned about getting the food that you need, nutrition that you need. And, you know, now, of course, we have a pretty good biological understanding of why that nutrition is important and mm -hmm. what it does for you. Um, but we certainly see this also in the archaeological record. Um, and, you know, if when cemeteries, um, and I'm most familiar with ones from the early Middle Ages, but when they've been dug up, you can see um, in the bones, sometimes some of the deficiencies that were there, for, for example, calcium deficiencies mm -hmm. often show up and things like that and damage to teeth. Um, so I'd say that is definitely one thing. And we see it here because there's definitely a concern with how are they how are they going to find food and people moving to find food for their children and things like this. And a set suggestion also that comes up later in the books, too, of um, people starving. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's, I think, part of the equation, too. The other thing is that I think the education would have been very different. I mean, let me ask you about the nutrition. Oh, real yeah, yeah, quick. yeah. Sure. No problem. All right. So I'm wondering what the the actual physical impact would be. Would it be that commoners didn't grow as tall, didn't have the muscle mass, didn't have I mean, is it the case that because of the nutritional deficits that commoners, maybe they would be viewed as less valuable soldiers, and maybe nobility would actually have all of those physical attributes that you would look for in someone who could actually fight on the battlefield? Yeah, I think some of those things are very hard to measure. So for example, like muscle mass, we don't really have a good way of doing that because sure. it doesn't survive in the archaeological record. Right. Um, and I mean, there's a, a long list of things I wish were described in medieval sources, but descriptions or measurements of muscle mass, definitely not in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that one's like a hard one, but yeah, I think it would have affected their ability to develop strong muscles. But the, the one thing I think that's most clear about the nutritional deficiencies is it would have made um, people who were not getting enough food more susceptible to disease. Right. That's pretty well documented. And um, so, you know, if you're not getting good nutrition to begin with, your body's just not able to fight off disease um, in the same way. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I think, yes, it is possible that they were shorter, but we do not have enough um, overall evidence to for me to say with 100% sureness yes that the elite tended to be taller than the mm. non-elite we, mm -hmm. we don't know that sure. um but i mean yes i think that's very possible um because we do know that um in times of famine that people simply don't grow as tall and so uh that that would definitely be part of it as well in terms of being soldiers i think that there was an understanding in the middle ages that the non-elite were almost like a different type of soldier than the elite, mm -hmm. um, especially because the elite often had horses and that, that very much set them apart. Right. Um, yeah. And so I think it's a different kind of warfare. So I'm not, I'm not 
uh, you know, warfare is not like an area I'm super expert in. Um, but my sense would be that they would not necessarily have been compared in that way at that time. Sure. Yeah. And we would know, we know for certain now with modern science that your physiological makeup, hunger being chief among them, absolutely does affect your mental capacities. Oh, for absolutely. So yes. you were going to talk a little bit about the difference in education. And I, and I mm -hmm. guess opportunity is like 90% of the problem, right? But there's also the question of, you know, if you, if you have a primary need of, you know, dictated by your hunger, are you going to learn as quickly? And the answer is probably no. Yeah, I think that is absolutely correct. I also think just for the non-elite, that education was something different. It was a more practical education. You would probably have learned by like watching your parents mm -hmm. or other people in your community do things, or you may have been an apprentice at one point um, where you learn skills. It's more of a hands-on sort of education. Mm -hmm. Whereas you do would say for the elite, many of them did learn how to read. I mean, um, some of them probably, you know, like any group of people, like some are going to be more interested in pursuing mm -hmm. reading and learning more than others. Uh, but they would have, they had tutors and, and it was possible for some children to, to go to schools in the middle ages, um, especially boys. Um, and especially later, we have a little bit better documentation for that. Uh, not something that would have been so open to say someone, you know, working on a farm mm -hmm. that just would have been different. So different kinds of education, like, for instance, we have Gendry in this chapter, right? Yeah. Gendry. he was an apprentice, right? Yeah, he's an apprentice. He's he's learned the craft. He's learned a particular craft and learned it pretty well. Who knows if he can read? It probably isn't required for his job, right? Um, yeah, hard to say, yeah. <laughs> so, and then you've got, like, in the first book, we are told that Sansa loves to read. And this is, doesn't really interest Arya that much, but she's good with numbers, we're told in the first book. Mm -hmm. So, yes. all right, so she's she has some capacity there, but really what she does is she throws herself into learning the art of swordplay. Yes, and very much in opposition. She doesn't want to do needlework like Sansa. That's right. Right? That's and that's right. a more traditional kind of educational pursuit for girls, sure. both in the books and in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Arya, Arya's mind has advantages that some of these other boys don't have, right? Yes. She's been taught to think. She's been taught by, you know, Sirio to really see. Like, don't just look. See. And I think what he means is in that way, you know, interpret. You know, see, see what they don't want you to, you know, see about the situation. In this chapter, she doesn't just see the gold cloaks. She sees that the... The horses are lathered. In other words, they must have been riding hard and fast for a while. Mm -hmm. And this allows her to kind of see, like, these men may be in more of a desperate situation than you might see on the surface. And I think all of these are kind of outworkings of her education, even though we might not think of those abilities of observation as, you know, maybe something that's part of traditional education yeah uh, but i do think with aria we have this really keen mind that that's emerging oh definitely and uh, you can also get a, an idea i think in the chapter that she just has a bigger sense of the world yeah. than those other kids because she 
she has that moment where she's like, oh, I wish I had a map so I could figure out like how close this is to this. Mm-hmm. And like you can see in her head, she has this idea of what does the whole of Westeros like? And she thinks in much bigger terms because she comes yeah, from yeah. the elite as well. And I think part of that is from formal education. But again, I think part of it is from the informal education that elite children would have had of being around powerful people and hearing the things they said and the way they talked about the world. That would be very different, I think, from say, um, you know, one of these non-elite kids like Hapai. Like, what did he grow up hearing? It would have been really different, yeah, sure. right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and now, you know, all these studies are really like I think excellent about showing that the atmosphere that children grow up in has such an influence on their ability to engage in both formal education and to be successful in life. You know, just the sheer number of vocabulary words that a child hears, right, has this huge effect. So you can kind of see this at play as well, I think, in this chapter, this this difference among the kids. And I think um, Gendry is a really good example because it's showing some gradations among the non-elite, right? Gendry has been an apprentice. He's right. been exposed to King's Landing as opposed to some of these other kids who just seem really, they're younger and from even poorer circumstances and just seem kind of lost in the world. Absolutely. I mean, yes. So she has an advantage in a number of ways over these boys who grew up destitute. But in a sense, they also have an an advantage that she doesn't have, which is they sort of know how to scrape by. Right. They're they're kind of right. And and she's having to figure it out, but they kind of know. And in a sense, like she's she's smart. Like she picks up on like how are they surviving. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th of the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. How you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do, do you even know what it's like out there? N- no, n- not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That, that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? 
Um, actually, she kind of left him to be raised by Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are too. We're preparing to once again recommission the Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. So you mentioned this passage. I'm I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It's been a bad year for wolves, volunteered a sallow man in travel-stained green cloak. Around the god's eye, the packs have grown bolder than anyone can remember. Sheeps, cows, dogs, it makes no matter. They kill as they like, and they got no fear of men. It's worth your life to go into those woods by night. Ah, that's more tales, and no more true than the other. I heard the same thing from my cousin, and she's not the sort to lie, an old woman said. She says that there's this great pack, hundreds of them, man-killers. The one that leads them is a she-wolf, a bitch from the seventh hell. A she-wolf, Arya sloshed her beer, wondering, was the god's eye near the trident? So she's thinking that, she's wondering if the god's eye is near the trident, because the trident is where she sent Nymeria away. And so she's making this connection. She doesn't have a map in her head, but she knows, like, I don't know that information, but I know where to find it. If I needed if I needed to, mm-hmm. I kind of know that I could f- probably find out how close those two locations are, right? And she's, she's smart enough to make the connection. Uh, that sounds a little bit like my wolf right that sounds a little bit <laughs> yes. like Nymeria. uh great pack of wolves and the one that is a, is a she bitch from the seventh hell um that to me that kind of gives you this little idea about what you were kind of calling out as this wider view of the world yes and i also like this passage because she goes on to correct the adults and says yeah, you're you're talking about wolves behaving in ways wolves don't do. Wolves don't snatch children out of the arms of their mothers. <laughs> and I love this because actually, um, wolves. There's stories in um, the Middle Ages about wolves, and so like this, I think draws to some degree on them. Whether Martin did it explicitly or just because you know it's become part of Western mm. culture. But there's one that I've written about, like from my own work from the ninth century. There's a miracle account, um, and so these are just accounts of the miracles that occurred at a saint shrine. You know, it's a way of the monastic community saying, look, our saint's really powerful. Um, And one of these stories is about um, how a wolf snatched a little boy, presumably an infant. um, And it says like the villagers were kind of all around, the adults and the children were around at the edge of the village and the wolf snatches the baby and runs Mm -hmm. away with it. And it says everyone chases it, but they can't get it. It's only when the mother prays to the saint and mm. only then when the wolf crosses into the saint's territory, that is the monastic territory, that suddenly the wolf has to drop the baby unharmed. And, you know, it's one of those things like um, 
in looking at that account, when I kind of wrote about it, I was like, well, clearly this is not wolf behavior. And so when I read this, I was, you know, really charmed that Aria also knows this is not wolf behavior. This is a story, right? The people want to tell right. about the wolves and that it might say something broader about how they, the, the dangers of the woods or the dangers of the world right. around them and what you can't control. Does this stem from the idea that the wolf is really kind of the devil's creature? Like there are certain animals that you would associate more with the devil? Um, it could be. It's, the wolf is seen as a dangerous creature for sure, in mm -hmm. that, even in that early period. Um, there, were, there were books about animals, one's called the Physiologus, um, from this period, and it definitely accorded animals with certain sort of traits and understandings of the mm -hmm. animals. But definitely wolves were perceived to be dangerous animals. Definitely. And of course, the saint, because I was just wondering, like, if, if the saint has power over the wolf, are we seeing kind of a, a binary view of the world? Like, oh, yeah, you know, there's territory that's that's divine. There's territory that's that's demonic. You know, that that's I, I think that the wolf, the, oh. the woods would generally be thought of as sort of like, you know, that's that's where the devil's creatures reside. You know, that's, yeah, I think the woods is more that the woods is a place of danger because it's uncontrollable mm, mm -hmm. um, and you can't really keep track of everything in it. Um, and I think that's a kind of a constant problem. I'm not so sure they would say that this, in terms of the saint, that it would be a dichotomy that the saint's land is somehow better than the other land. It's just that the saint, that's where the saint has power. Um, that's where the saint can best intercede, right? And the whole idea behind the saint is the saint isn't actually making this happen. The saint's interceding with God to get God to make it happen. And the t right? the, in this story, the saint is like dead and gone, but they're praying to the saint. Is that the idea? Correct. Um, and they were definitely promoting their own saint's cult with the idea of attracting pilgrims and attracting devotion. Um, but also, I think you, we can read these miracle accounts sometimes as like they're they're they have little lessons, right? Other side lessons in addition to the bigger lessons about how one should behave. Um, and I think this also says something about like what it is to be a good mother. Mm. Um, I think that that would have been appealing too. like the good mother never gives up. And the good mother, she knows to pray to the saint that the saint will help her with her child, right? Um, and I think this comes up, right? Because Catelyn mm. prays for her own sons later um, when she knows that they are in oh. danger. Um, and I think that's a similar kind of impulse or idea that also, again, seems medieval without being really right. medieval at all, because of course it's a different religion in the book, a made up religion. But, you know, I think it draws to some degree on some of those things. And I think it is similar. Like she's like, I'm going to go through these ritual actions and I'm going to pray to kind of help my children. That's something I can do to help my children. I think that in this chapter, we see a, a, a couple little indications that the world around them is sort of encoded religiously like you mentioned they they saw the the, the grave of the child and there's a little crystal on the grave mm -hmm. and sort of this is their it's their version of a cross right that because they're worshiping the seven gods and of course crystals are a part of that religion but mm -hmm. then uh, this pack that that is being rumored is hanging around the god's eye and the God's Eye is this sacred island, but it's sacred not because of the faith of the seven. It's sacred because of the old gods. And, of course, that is what connects Arya to the yeah. the traditions <laughs> of the north. It's, it's yeah. the wolves and all of that. And I think it's interesting that 
you know, what is the, this old woman says, she's a she-bitch from the seventh hell. All right, well, that's part of the religion, or the, the mythology of the faith of the seven, the seven hells, right? And so she has a much different perspective on the wolf, right? She she knows, wolves don't snatch babies. In fact, that's probably my wolf. And, and I know that Nymeria wouldn't do such a thing. And then for so she's encoding the world differently than the people around her. They're they're encoding the world through Faith of the Seven and she's has a more northern perspective on these things. But then she kind of has this little moment where she's like I I bet you Numeria wouldn't even remember me. <laughs> and I do think you get this sense of alienation like she's been cut off from her father, she's no longer, you know, near her sister which she probably wouldn't have wanted to be until they were separated. But she's also alienated yeah, from, from her, her culture. culture. I mean, I also think that Nymeria comes to mind to, for her because probably in Arya's mind, Nymeria would be attracted to a place that was a place of the old gods, right? So yeah, I agree, like completely. Um, and But I think, yeah, part of this is loss of the kind of culture that she's grown up in, the world yeah, that she's grown right. up in. And yeah, I think there is a kind of sense in which when she says, well, would Nymeria remember me? It's almost like, will that world remember me? Like, right. what was I to that world? Yeah, she's not the little girl that left no. Winterfell, right? There's some continuity there, but man, has a lot happened her in her life. You know, she's had like legit trauma. She's had lessons. She's She knows the world is a much bigger place. She's learned to kind of see things a little bit more polit- politically than she did before. Um, I think in all of those ways, I do feel like there's something of an innocence lost in her. And it's still early in her story, but but she's grown up a lot. Well, that's happened to her in a really fast time. I think I think yeah. like um, you get this sense in this chapter that she's she's still processing it, and she doesn't know. Right, where where it's taking her, like you, yeah, yeah. I. That's another sense where I feel like it's well written as a chapter that's from the point of view of a of a child or maybe even early adolescent, like that she's kind she's processing this, but she doesn't have like the mental kind of context yet to think about it in the ways maybe an adult would think about it or understand it. Like she's still putting things together. She's growing up. Yeah. Right. All right. I've got a question for an expert on the medieval world. Okay. All right, so these gold cloaks come to the inn, mm-hmm. and the gold cloak has a, a ribbon from the queen. Okay. Basically, it's what's written on the ribbon is that, you know, by order of the queen, uh, please bring back this uh, this kid. Right. And they're looking for Gendry. And Yorin has an interesting response. He says, uh-uh, there's laws about this. And so Yorn is appealing to an authority, and the gold cloak guy is appealing to an authority. So then the question is, what is the greater authority? Is it the queen or the law? <laughs> this is a good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I can give you a, like a super satisfying answer, because I, part of the reason I, I like this part of the chapter, this particular aspect, is it does feel very medieval. Um because without a modern bureaucratic state, enforcement of any kind of law or any kind of will of someone who's governing is much more difficult. Uh. And communication is slow. Um, and I think there's a sense in which it's not as clear, perhaps, as 
you know, I may be making it out to be in the books, but, and this is probably because I'm reading it from the angle of someone who's an early medieval historian, but there's a sense that there's kind of local custom or local, I wouldn't want to go so far as local law because that does not seem to be a part of the Game of Thrones world, but sort of like local customs also sometimes comes into play in the Game of Thrones world where what decision you make could rest on something like what what have we traditionally done here over time <laughs> what have my people from where i am from done traditionally over time mm -hmm. what is the king's law and then the queen this is quite nebulous it's the queen not the king mm -hmm. right and that's that's different too and then in terms of the law i mean this is always tricky and this is something i mean it's still the case for us now there can be written law but sometimes there are written laws that don't aren't necessarily practiced anymore, right? And so right. what ways over what? I mean, this is where you know huge bodies of jurisprudence are written. But um, I think in this world, this does seem medieval to me in the sense that there's competing ideas of what is supposed to happen. Um, right. And I would say the, the reason my answer is not going to be very satisfactory is I would say, I think it's really going to depend on the situation, whether or not the people in that place would think that the queen's, um, you know, command is mm. overrides the law or whether people think that the law overrides what the queen wants. I think it would depend on that local situation. <laughs> yeah. Where is the greater social pressure? Yeah. And I think this is something um, there have been some um, early medieval historians who've done some really great work on how justice is meted out in the early middle ages and they've noted that sometimes it can seem quite odd to modern people because it might not seem like justice is meted out in a way that um we would expect like okay all murders must be pursued to their to their bitter end but it's they say it's much more about instead of an ideal of like all murder is terrible and must be absolutely punished and i should add here that early medieval people in Europe who were Christian definitely understood murder to be wrong and would have thought all murders were wrong. But the question is, how far do you pursue the murderer or what happens? Right. That part of this is like, how do you keep peace within a community? It's not that there's a difference between keeping peace within a community sometimes and an abstract sense of justice. And that this can be a kind of tricky thing. And that sometimes when we look at like, how did justice work out on the ground and try to understand why, one way of understanding that is what would have kept peace at that moment. And I think in this scene, what we're seeing is the gold cloaks come and they think people should just listen to us and listen to the queen, but there's enough people around, right? That who are saying, no, I mean, they all kind of stand like, I'm not sure if they stand up, but they, they take a stand, I should say. Yeah. Right. And say, no, we're going to, we're going to defend Gendry, right? You can't yeah. take him. And I think in that sense, that's what's overriding is that the commu that community at that moment, um, they've made a decision about what is important. Mm. And that may be the overriding matter here. And that's what tips the decision. But in another situation, that Queen's order could have been much more powerful. Yeah, I'm wondering if, I mean, I guess if you were going to be sort of really reductive, you could say, well, who's got the bigger sword? You know, who has the bigger yeah. army, right? Well, and, I, and, I, and even like you can have like a group of armed men and feel very powerful. But in the end, if you make all the people under you unhappy, is yeah, that actually going to work out for you in the long run? In some cases, no, right? You might want to kind yes. of keep a kind of sense of peace in the community 
and that's I think that's also part of it. Are you playing a long game or a short game? And I think that I, I didn't really connect this until I heard you explain, but I think a lot of these guys are from Flea Bottom, right? Yeah. And so there's this historic tension between the gold cloaks and the men of Flea Bottom. Absolutely. And so it's sort of like a cops and robbers kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So so it's not like they really care about defending Gendry as so much as they think well maybe they do. Maybe they think he's one of ours. We know we know the the men of Flea Bottom and we are as thick as thieves and we don't trust gold cloaks. Just in just generally, right? Yeah. And also, I don't think they have any love for the queen. I mean, this is harder, I think, to say, like, right at this point in the book. But if we were to look ahead, I mean, Tyrion is definitely critical of Cersei for not paying attention to the needs of just average people in King's Landing. And it's like Tyrion, I think, has a better sense across this book. Oh, absolutely. Of, like, what needs to be done. And, like, he gets that you have to play a longer game. And she's just so contemptuous. So I also can't picture, um, I mean, there are cases of medieval queens who, you know, were beloved and were known for doing amazing things, right, for the poor, for example. Like, I'm I'm thinking of um, Elizabeth of Hungary. But, um, like, that is so not Cersei, right? And so I also think that it's not just the gold cloaks. They're just like, that queen? Really? You know, why yeah. Why would we care about her or what she says? In Tyrion's chapter, he notices that the flea, that these vendors of Flea Bottom are roasting rats and selling mm-hmm. rats. Yes. Because Cersei has, not, not only have they been taxed, people have been taxed on their way into the city, but there's no food. Once they get to the city, there's no food because Cersei has decided she's not going. She's going to protect the, the the people by letting them into the walls. She's not going to feed the people, and so it, it very well could be that that decision is felt and has sort of some wider repercussions. And and we and we definitely see how food drives people in this chapter. I mean, across yeah. these two chapters, and really, I would say across Clash of Kings. Um, to me, that's you know, always felt like kind of a theme of it is in the kind of in the background is the effects of war on people who don't make the wars. Right, right. Notable introductions in this chapter. Um, we are introduced to Prade. Uh, I think that's how you say his name. I uh, That's how I would say it too. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't Praed. know. <laughs> and notable departures, we say goodbye to Prade. Yes. <laughs> so, so he's introduced... <laughs> And uh, then he just dies in his sleep. Book differences here. I think this is pretty well represented on the show. I just feel like the setting is different. Like, I think this happens kind of on the road, the the encounter with the, the gold cloaks, or at least yeah. the initial encounter. It's not at the inn, and you don't have all of the, you know, the bathing and Arya digging into a recently baked pie or whatever. Otherwise, I feel like the show kind of captured this chapter pretty well yeah i'd agree i think the show captured the definitely the spirit of it well i think they just simplified the the setting mm-hmm. and by simplifying the setting it meant fewer actors less mm-hmm. time spent on it but i think it captured the the kind of feel of it there's and there's fewer characters in the show than you, you oh, get sure. in the book but i think that's across the whole the whole um series and book series so 
Yes. Yeah, I, I thought it captured well. And they definitely they lifted some of the dialogue straight from the chapter. Right. Which is quite nice sometimes. Right. Yeah. Now, I will note that, um, like, for instance, I guess, like, uh, there's this character, Tarber, and we're told that Tarber throws acorns over Prade's body when they bury him, thinking, like, maybe an oak will grow up um, to kind of commemorate their fallen brother. That That would be the kind of thing that... You really need a book that's seven hundred pages to kind of include that kind of detail. That's not gonna <laughs> exactly not gonna make it in the show. But I was gonna say, even though we're not introduced to him in the chapter, we learn his name and and that is Jack and Hagar. Um, you know, we we've seen him before in Arya's previous chapter, but he kind of introduces himself to Arya more robustly in this chapter. And we know he's gonna become an important mentor for her along the way. Yeah, and he's. I think it's an interesting introduction in the sense that, uh, like, something that struck me on rereading the chapter before this talk was the, his physical description, which I think I hadn't, I don't know, picked up under notice the previous time I, I read the chapter. Um, he he's his appearance sounds kind of frightening or strange, right? And I thought, oh wow, that she ends up deciding eventually that he's to be trusted to some degree uh -huh. this makes it even more interesting but it's like i don't know it's a good it's a good description of the book i think in the show they i mean that's always a difference too for me from the show from the books is that in the show they kind of tone down some of the more extreme kinds of appearance that martin describes yeah i think with you martin, know, across the book <laughs> yeah martin loves colors his, yes. i think his view of the medieval <laughs> world is that there are characters that are going to be like I have like bright blue dyed beards and you know they're shaped into a trident and Jack and Hagar in this iteration you know, half of his hair is white and the other half is red and he's got a great nose and he speaks a little bit like Cyril Pharrell which Arya notes like it's the same but it's a little different as well like she's really observing him and trying to make a decision about who he is Boy. Lovely boy. What do you want? A man has a thirst. A man does not drink for a day and a night. A boy could make a friend. I have friends. Take this beer before I skin you. A man does not choose his companions. These two, they have no courtesy. A man must ask forgiveness. Mm. You're called Ari. This man has the honor to be Jack and Raka, once of the free city of Flora. But I think in general, the the show will tend to tone down those colors. Yeah. It's also, I think, you know, with, with the appearance of the Targaryens and Tyrion, you know, those are the two, I think, classic cases. But and I think part of that is to make it palatable to, you know, a TV audience. Um, but also, I think it's like it's diffi too difficult in some cases to you know, make a human appear this way. Right. And so it may not be worth it to the showrunners. Like, so I'm affected here by my colleague that I taught the class with who, who, um, Jeff Chown, who teaches about long form television. And he and I would often, some of the best things in the class would be him and I discussing why certain things happened. And I would often say, well, you know, in the middle ages, and he would say, well, a TV budget. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, yes. And so I think budget is always part of it too. And I think, 
you know, that also sometimes accounts for some of the simplification. It's, it's narrative, but it's also sometimes it's, it has to do with the finances of the mm-hmm. show. Let me ask you this. All right, so Martin's view specifically of, and you see this like with the tournaments and whatnot, his view mm-hmm. of these knights is that they're very colorful. Like they, they've got yeah. banners and that, you know, some of their helmets are, sh- are shaped in certain ways and, you know, bright plumes and, you almost get this, and the horses are 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 clothed in bright colors as well. You get the sense when you're reading the book that Martin views these tournaments as a very colorful affair. And then, of course, on the show, it's everything's a little bit more muddy. Everything's a little bit more dull. Everything's a little bit more, you know, steel and leather. And I'm wondering, is Martin getting that from stories? From the Middle Ages, or is he getting that with like? I'm just wondering if this is kind of an anachronism on his part, or if knights in the real world would have been so colorful. I think I think it's actually in the in the kind of real world of the Middle Ages, it would have been mixed. Definitely, um, it's certainly in the late Middle Ages. I think tournaments were quite colorful affairs, um, and I I mean. We wouldn't want to say some of the uh, descriptions that Martin has, especially in the books of um, really super elaborate helmets and things like that. Some of that we don't really see so much in the Mm. Middle Ages. And this is where I think Martin has a great, it's a great historical pastiche because he really pulls from so many different time periods and kind of puts it all together. So in that sense, no, like his description of the tournaments in the books is never going to be a perfect fit for the Middle Ages. But yeah, I would still argue that especially in the late Middle Ages, a tournament would have been a pretty colorful, exciting place. But I think it also would have been really muddy. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and really, you know, so and I think like in the terms of the show, to me, it feels like it's the kind of um, like Game of Thrones really draws on like this depiction of pseudo medieval warfare as gritty that we see in a lot of other recent films Hmm. um it's different from like older films i would think so for example like i think a contrast that um is kind of a classic one to draw is the difference between laurence olivier's henry v and um kenneth branagh's Mm. or kenneth branagh like it's a post vietnam war movie it's it doesn't show warfare in the same way yeah it's a much more gritty kind of realistic kind of warfare um in the same sense that like you know some of the post vietnam war movies of other eras are also shown to be more gritty. So I, I do wonder, I'm, you know, and I'm not going to say like, this is like a conscious choice necessarily on the part of the showrunners might've been an unconscious choice. Um, but I think in a sense, it's more what a modern audience would expect I see. that if it's too bright yes. and too pretty, that a modern audience is not going to buy it as something real. Yeah. Then it's too <laughs> fantastical. It's too fantasy, yeah, you know, maybe. I think you're right. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. So yeah. I do I do see her as a protagonist, but I see her as the, there's clearly more more to this. There's, look, man, this is the Game of Thrones we're talking about here. There is no rules on the back of the box. <laughs> you know what? This This entire, I wrote two books about Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And I uh, took over this podcast, and this was all a big long con to get you to watch the show with me. <laughs> and at this moment, at this moment, the moment where you said, "This is the Game of Thrones, man. There's no rules on the back of the box." 
I feel like I win. I feel like this has all been worth it. <laughs> Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe! Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at bald move just join the club but some people aren't a joining type or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage or for podcasts that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time for these and for whatever other reason you might have our tip jar is always open head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say hey keep doing what you're doing we appreciate it once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-run movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members, with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is reward unto itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. I want to ask you about Otto. One of the characters that you identified in your notes as someone who is kind of interesting and might have a historical parallel is Otto. And he seems to be one of like, you know, he's he's kind of the the big mover and shaker of the show. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Otto. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought he was interesting, you know, his position. I mean, he, he's obviously the power behind the throne, isn't he? Yeah. Um, but but I mean he is he's from a kind of lesser family, certainly not from one of the great families. 
I don't think. Um, he's a younger son, so you know he, he wouldn't have been one to normally uh-huh. or actually succeed. Um, so his advancement in Westerosi politics comes down to the fact that he is he has that position, and then the fact that he's having having uh, been hand for for more than one king, he then increasingly becomes that kind of trusted, mm. respected figure, doesn't he? Um, but but I, I think it does reflect that example of of, of families on the rise. Um, you know, families who who are able to make something of themselves due to service at court rather than through inheritance or succession. Um, and I think that's that's quite interesting to see because yeah, in, in my my own studies, I suppose that, that there is comparison with with medieval Scotland, particularly in the 15th century. You see a, a sequence of royal successions which are interrupted by royal minorities. So su- successive. Uh, 15th century Scottish monarchs inherit uh, or succeed, sorry, um, as 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 youngsters, and so there are periods of of minority government, mm-hmm. and in each of those you see families kind of rising to the top quickly. Families which have been prominent, or, or perhaps not quite as prominent at court, seizing their opportunity in a period where there is no obvious seat of power, um, and and seizing control of the king because that gives them that authority. It allows them to do things. And to wield power and to to grant lands and 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 make themselves important in yeah. a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So you've got the the Crichtons and the Livingstons during the minority of James II, the Boys during the minority of James III, all of whom rise fast um, and enjoy their moment in the sun. But but as soon as those kings reach the majorities, turn on them and they fall just as quickly mm, mm. Uh, thereafter. So I, I suppose my my having not having read the book on which the series is based i'll be interested to see if Otto follows that kind of trajectory as someone who studies this professionally were you watching the show at any moment and thinking oh that's obviously anachronistic <laughs> um yeah i mean i, I think uh, i thought that the the dragons rather obviously but but not for not for the obvious reason of they're not being dragons. Um, I, I, I just thought it was really interesting those those latter episodes where Damon and Rhaenyra are, you know, strategizing. They're, they're talking about where they can move their troops, how they can besiege potentially King's Landing. But the key, the key tactic for them is the use of the dragons that they have more of them. And of course, there's there's nothing of that kind of status of super weapon in in medieval warfare. Right. Um, so you don't you don't have a comparison. I, I think it's far more like the very modern idea of, you know, an aircraft carrier group or or a, or a tactical nuclear weapon or something. Is yeah. No, I think it? you're right. I think Martin has said that the dragons kind of do represent something like a, of a nuclear nuclear bomb or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it, that it, is a that... bringing in of a modern concept into the ancient world. Yeah, very much so. So I think in, in a military context, then it is. And we saw that in, in Game of Thrones as well. You know, warfare is fought out in a pretty normal, standardized way until Daenerys rocks up and Westeros with her dragons, and then it all goes mm. to hell. Mm. Um, you know, you get you get Jamie's forces just utterly destroyed by by one dragon, um, but because they have that kind of impact and that ability. So So yes, that's... That's something that's completely out of kilter with with how you might assume 
the, the depiction of warfare is because because the rest of the time it is you know knights and swords and in ships and, and that type of thing and ships oh yeah and ships yeah and, and actually that, that is quite a nice one because the naval part of medieval warfare is is, is one of the kind of understudied bits or the bit that, that often gets forgotten about so mm-hmm. so yes the movement of, of men by sea and, and and fighting at sea is certainly interesting i think that the, the dragons also though completely upset the balance of power politically don't they um you know, it, the Targaryens are on the throne, and there has been that those that a massive era of peace and an uninterrupted Targaryen succession because of the dragons, because nobody can stand against them because they have access to dragons and nobody else does. Um, and so you get that idea of of a, an eon spanning Targaryen mm, reign, which mm. which again wouldn't be the case. You have you have long reign yeah, long reigning dynasties in the Middle Ages, uh, but certainly nothing like that. And that's because. Because dynasties are always challenged, um, and dynasties also die out. You know there are always accident accidents of birth and mm-hmm. death, which interrupt things. And and obviously you have that in in the House of the Dragon, but but they just solve it by going back to further up the the Targaryen line, and and so it's fine. Um, that's how you have Viserys' own succession. But but in 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 historical cases, it doesn't tend to work that way, or it doesn't often work that way. So. I didn't ask you this ahead of time because I just got this email. It's a question. And I think that I can answer this okay, but I, I want to see I want to see uh, if maybe you can help me answer this question. Um, this is a question from DW. Can you find one of your amazing guests? That's you, Ian. You're, you're, you're one of my amazing guests. To talk about where the idea of a dragon came from. What's the origin of dragons in the real world? It seems that many cultures have an idea of a winged beast or other mystical, mythical beasts. How did houses get associated with dragons? So this kind of overlaps a little bit with my own research of the ancient world. So I'll just go ahead and start this. And maybe you can help me with the medieval period. So it it kind of depends on where you want to start because this idea comes out of China and it also comes out of Egypt. So in Egypt, you've got this chaos monster named Apep and he's more like a giant snake. And, um, and then out of China, you've got the idea, the same word for dragon is the same word for crocodile. So the mythology kind of comes out of these animals that you might meet by the river in both cases. Right. In Egypt, Apep is a chaos monster. In China, the dragon almost represents like a storm beast or, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a symbol for the balance of weather, really. And in the Ming Dynasty, we have dragons being used as sigils. We see depictions of rulers with a, a dragon sigil on their robe. But my guess, and you can help me with this, is that probably medieval Britain borrows dragon imagery from the Bible. The book of Revelation has the dragon mentioned. My guess is that their interest in biblical mythology is more of the source for the dragons in that period. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. I think yeah, the the allusion to to dragons being linked to the to the devil um uh, yeah. and such and, and to kind of evil generally um i I think is is perhaps where it comes from and then you have the development of that with you know um saintly tales like saint george um slaying the dragon and and the popularity of 
of those types of saints and then the use of those types of saints within kind of national myth building um you know it means that the the dragon then finds representation in uh, medieval art and in medieval church art perhaps particularly yeah quite commonly um, especially in somewhere like england with with the pickup of, of or the development of saint george as a, as a national saint um you know you have that representation in a popular context and so you see it you see it uh, quite often i think um but yeah i, I think i think absolutely a, a biblical beginning for it um, yeah in, then... in revelation the dragon is just forthrightly called the devil right mm. so and i think at this point i don't know if there's a clear idea of like a winged beast with legs and you know serpentine body or whatever but at times you do see kind of something that looks more like how we imagine dragons in these medieval bestiaries. Yeah, I think uh, those those kind of bestiary depictions are are direct. Um, you know that 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 is where later artists and authors, I think, take their take their lead from because you know the <laughs> bestiary depictions of animals are, are famously not all that accurate no, um, no. But, but but then by and large <laughs> over the centuries we've worked that out and 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 had better better depictions of such things provided whereas mm-hmm. of course dragons take the form they do because they're replicated because there isn't the real world example to copy so their development probably is quite uh, early and then it, it kind of retains that form through much of history i suppose it's interesting yeah. though what you're saying about them having perhaps different forms in a different global context, you know, that in a, that, that that idea of a Chinese context being quite different in terms of what it looks like and, and the form it takes. Yeah, yeah, we see like ancient descriptions and like uh, Egyptian and Babylonian texts. We have some carvings that uh, you can find in Iran uh, mm. temples and, and things like that. And I do think that the Egyptian mythology does absolutely inform the biblical uh, ideology about this. Right. There is something about the idea of like throwing back the chaos. You're looking forward to the end of time when chaos is no more. And so the metaphor of a dragon is very much. And I don't know, like if you think about where Martin gets his influence, there is a sense in which the dragon is meant to balance out the weather. You know, he's he's got these two major magical elements of his world building. It's it's the the seasons are are weird. <laughs> and then the dragons are meant to battle the the creatures of winter, right? So, <laughs> but I mean, I think that for the most part, in House of the Dragon, there is something to the fact that Damon is something of a, a creature of chaos. Yeah. Right. So he's yeah. he's the most dragonish guy on the show, and he happens to be the most chaotic and warlike. Whereas Viserys is kind of like partitioned himself off from the dragons. He he almost doesn't like the idea of being associated with dragons. And he's the king of peace. So I think yeah. that there there is something about that ancient concept of dragons that informs these characters. I, I suppose as well, the, the kind of chaotic aspect of it is what plays out right at the end of the series as well, isn't it? That that Because I think you've maybe been lulled into a sense of thinking that these dragons are controlled and yep. controllable, um, but that, that those final scenes very yeah, much no, demonstrate the chaos or not. Chaos yeah. monsters. You, you, or, you know, they, they're either chaos monsters or they're just engines of war, right? So yeah, yeah. They, they, they're going to do what dragons do, and, and, and I think Viserys calls that out in the first episode. He, he says... We should have never messed with them. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a mythology that we control these dragons. In reality, I think what he's saying is they're going to lead us to war. But then you have Damon saying we need to get more dragons. Yeah, right, right. We need, right, to, we need yeah. to get these wild dragons and tame them. And that, that, right. that, that way leads, you know, chaos and catastrophe. That's right. But of course, for a second son, it absolutely is his way to distinguish himself. You know, yeah. he's... Yeah. He's a dragon rider, and if, yeah. he, if, if you go to war, he gets to show his medal. So. Yeah. 